Justin Richmond's twist in the road surfaced on September 29, 2009, at Camp Batista, a key Filipino military base in the southern Philippines. Richmond was deployed there as a U.S. Army Special Operations team leader, helping the Filipino Army with stabilization, counterinsurgency, and information operations. Two of my colleagues, Jack Martin and Chris Shaw, were both uh, killed in an IED attack. Uh, on the 29th. Those were the only two combat deaths uh, during the entire lifetime of that task force. It happened because we took for granted our narrative and we took for granted that everybody wanted us there and thought that we were there to help them and protect them. Richmond's inability to convince his superiors to abort the ill-fated mission forced him to confront his blind loyalty to the U.S. military and to question how critical decisions are often made without respect for religious and cultural norms, basic common sense, and the absence of clear, actionable data. Hello, everyone. I'm Chitra Raghavan, and this is When It Mattered. This episode is brought to you by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups find their narrative. Joining me now is Justin Richmond, founder and executive director of Impul Project, a scrappy little nonprofit with a global vision and mission to use data to drive community outcomes. Richmond is an alumnus of Duke University, Five Wars, USAID, and Silicon Valley, where he served as a forward deployed engineer at Palantir Technologies. Justin, welcome to the podcast. Good morning, Chitra. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. What were the events that led to that twist in the road for you at Camp Batista on September 29, 2009? Well, when I first arrived at the task force in April of 2009, uh, we were coming into an already dynamic situation where three International Committee of the Red Cross um, aid workers had been kidnapped on that island by the Abu Sayyaf group. And, um, and while the Filipina had been released uh, very early on, uh, the two Europeans had been held for, I, I think, around three months um, and, and, and carted through the jungles uh, with the Filipino military chasing them and trying to get after um, the, the militants that kidnapped them. And this was a really big embarrassment for the Filipino military because they couldn't track down uh, these, these bad guys and find hostages. And so eventually the European governments, uh, governments paid ransoms to the terrorist group and the Europeans were, uh, were released. But in the process of trying to rescue uh, those, uh, those hostages, the Filipinos probably lost about uh, a dozen men over probably the course of the, those, those three months. And so when I came into the task force, they were really looking to get some revenge and find the guys that did this. So what happened? Well, they, all I know is I walked into um, the, the task force targeting meeting one morning and uh, somebody brought this up like, hey, you know, the, the guys that did this uh, ICRC kidnapping uh, are going to be, you know, at this place on the Feast of Eid and, you know, the Filipinos uh, want to go after them. To which, to which when I laughed and said, on the Feast of Eid, like, you can't do that. Like, you don't do major combat operations on holidays. And with the narrative that the Filipinos, that are, that's mostly Christian, um, already hate the Muslims, which are the 99% of the island's population, there's no way this operation works. I thought people were joking. I legitimately thought people were joking when they brought it up, but they weren't. And very quickly, I, I got concerned that um, I, I wouldn't have the clout to influence this this decision. I was just a, uh, a sergeant at the time, um, and I was the lowest ranking guy in the room, and that, that's just the way it goes. Um, but 
it was um, it, it's something that that haunts me to this day. And while I don't think any one person is to blame for uh, for the tragedy that happened um, on the on the 29th of September 2009, which is which is when my uh, my my colleagues were killed. I don't think there's anyone to blame for it. There was no malice there. Um, and there wasn't incompetence. It was hubris. Um, and it looks like, uh, man, that is the lesson that America is learning over and over again. Uh, but that's why we went to data. Uh, data was the solution. So tell me what happened. They decided to go ahead with the, with the operation and support the Filipinos. And let's remember, like, in our capacity there, we're, we're advisors and, and, and we're trainers and we're, we're what's called enablers. We're supposed to help our, our partner nations, but not, not get involved in direct combat, which is, uh, which is largely true. You know, the, the morning of the 20th, which was uh, Edel Feeder uh, in, in Sulu, you know, the sun came up, the prayers went out over the, um, uh, over the loudspeakers, and you could hear like, the entire island kind of bringing Ramadan to a close. And then the bombers started coming uh, from Zamboanga City, flying right over our base and right over the uh, population center of the island. The, the Filipino forces went forward with the operation um, with, with our support um, in terms of capacity and advising them and sitting right next to them. Um, and it's something that we should quite honestly have advised them not to do. That was our job was, you know, sometimes your job is to sit next to somebody and be like, that is a horrible idea and you shouldn't do that. Do that. And this is why. But I think if you look at the totality of the American wars since 2001, we can always say that there was an overemphasis on killing bad guys and not actually securing communities and helping to, to um, stabilize areas. And that's because we're really good at military stuff and not really good at other stuff. So on the 20th, um, on the 20th September, the operation kicked off uh, right as the uh, Muslims in Sulu were bringing Ramadan to a close. And um, the bombers were coming overhead. They were dropping 500 pounders out, uh, 500 pound bombs out on the jungle. Uh, the, the Filipino forces were about two to three hours behind, uh, behind, behind those bombers because they had gotten bogged down. Um, and it was just an unmitigated uh, disaster. You know, the bad guys weren't caught, the bad guys weren't killed. But what they did manage to do was uh, reinforce the narrative that the, the Christian Filipino military is out to get the local Muslim population, which is a narrative that has gone on uh, for the past, uh, really, 50 years of, of fighting since the early 70s. And, um, and that, when I saw that, and when I saw the, just the, the disbelief and, and utter disappointment of the population with our action and, and, and our support of the Philippine military's actions, um, that really made me, and, and then nine days later, seeing the uh, uh, two colleagues uh, get killed because of um, just, I think, uh, incautious action it really made me start thinking that there must be a better way to do this. And um, I must not be the only person out there struggling to, uh, uh, to get my superiors to, to see the right dynamics and to do the right thing. Um, and that's why I started looking for more options in, in data. So this was on September 20th. And then what happened that led to your two colleagues getting killed on the 29th? Um, the the operation on Eid um, ignited uh, pretty much all sectors of the population that were anti uh, like anti Philippine government like national government anti Philippine military and certainly anti American um, and I mean the island essentially erupted so uh, we had about ninety. 72, 96 hours where um, you know there was there was a threat of being overrun, um, and we since we were the main base, 
uh, we were taking care of the casualties coming in, in the, from the Filipino bases all around the island. Um, and the American surgical team was working on so many of these Filipino soldiers as they were getting cut up in ambushes and, and uh, um, attacks on their bases. And so, uh, I mean, the Filipino forces lost a lot of men, both in the initial attack and in, um, and in the uh, days after the, the Edo Feeder operation because they essentially radicalized the island against them. And, and, and the Taosugs and Sulu, that's the tribe that's down there, they made them pay. Um, and it was one of those, um, it, it, it was just a, a gruesome event. Um, and I, I think we probably lost around uh, two dozen Filipino soldiers over, or Filipino Marines over the course of those two weeks. But, um, you know, the, big, the, the incident that really, that, that obviously sticks in my mind is when uh, two of my colleagues, uh, Jack Martin and Chris Shaw, were both uh, killed in an IED attack uh, on the 29th. Uh, no, those were the only two, you know, combat deaths uh, during the entire lifetime of that task force. It happened because we, we took for granted our narrative and we took for granted that everybody wanted us there and thought that, that we were there to help them and protect them. Yeah. On the 29th of, uh, of September, Jack and Chris hopped in their Humvee and went to do a water resupply. And in the middle of that road was a really big bomb. Um, and they drove over it and uh, killed uh, Jack instantly. And, um, and Chris held on for a little while. He got medevaced over to us, myself and one of his former teammates were his uh, aid and litter team got him off the, the helo and prepared him for the forward surgical team. And, um, but you know, the, the injuries were too significant and, uh, he didn't, he didn't make it after that. And that's, you know, that's just what happens because, you know, I, I look back and I think time gives us, uh, the generosity of heart that we probably don't have in, in the moment. Um, and I look back and I think about the people that were involved in this decision and, you know, there wasn't maliciousness. There wasn't, there wasn't guile, um, it really boiled down to a lot of complacency and hubris. Um, and I think I keep going back to this word because there, there seems to be uh, a lot of data out there now, especially the data that's coming in around COVID that suggests um, like just the, the, the breadth of, of modern hubris and that uh, these modern things like COVID um, they are, they're going to hit us where it hurts. And the data shows that, you know, we, we have to be much more responsive in understanding of the situations that we're finding ourselves in. I, I, I never understood that until 2009, but I really felt like, you know, had I the right uh, information that I could have at least made a, a more compelling case uh, that may have prevented that operation. You know, it's uh, the uh, coulda, shoulda, wouldas. Um, and everybody has these regrets after going to war. Uh, but it's something that changed my life. And it led me to go to USAID and then led me to go to Palantir, where you and I bumped into each other a few times because, um, you know, I was part of the problem until I learned how to do data. So what was that moment like when you found out that Jack Martin and, and Chris Shaw were dead? Uh, sickening. Absolutely sickening. Um, I knew Jack was dead. Uh, but he was up on the mountain. He, and he was out of my mind. Uh, all that mattered was Brandon and I um, keeping an eye on Jack in the back of that Humvee until the, the surgical team got ready. Um, and I, I, uh, I'm embarrassed about the relief that I felt uh, once, we, uh, once, we got Chris in the, um, once we got Chris in the operating room because I, I'm not going to lie to you, in, in, in that moment of adrenaline and, you know, high emotions, I really felt like, you know, we had um, – we and really the medics who got to him before us, we didn't do much. Uh, the medics got to him before us had stabilized him and that, that he was going to make it. You know, there's that mythology within the modern American military that uh, if you can get somebody to good docs within the golden hour, that they're going to live. 
Um, and that's usually true. Um, but it's just not true in this case. And, uh, yeah, he passed away while he was, uh, in there with the, with the docs. And, um, yeah, that, that was, um, when, when we had retired to one of our, uh, common spaces after, uh, Chris was getting worked on, you know, they brought in, uh, they brought in, uh, Jack and, um, it was, it was really somber, obviously, you know, the body bag and the flag over it. And I made the, the, the remark, well, you know, at least, uh, at least Chris made it. And apparently I was one of the only people that didn't know that he died. And, um, I can't remember who it was that looked at me and they just shook their heads. They're like, and Chris is dead too. He, he didn't, he actually didn't live that long in the surgical suite at all. So, and man, that was, that was tough. Um, and so, um, you know, that, that really brought it home. And then going and talking to my, uh, my, my two younger teammates, a 20 year old and a 21 year old, uh, I think it was their both their first times being out of the country, first deployments, first, uh, first time in combat. And then, uh, you know, and, and they knew these guys, they knew Jack and Chris because we worked with that team all the time. And they had been in our office, uh, for the, for the majority of that day and, uh, walking in, um, you know, covered in gore and explaining them what happened. That was a really tough moment. That was a really tough moment, but uh, war is full of that. And, um, you know, you, you, you think about all the conflict that's going on. And I think um, I, um, it, it gives me a lot more empathy for what families are suffering. And I think that eventually led, led me to wanting to start an NGO um, and trying to work on the solution side of this. So you left the military. And so then where did you go next? And, and how did you end up setting up uh, your Impul Project NGO? I feel like special operations um, made me very survivable. Um, I don't know how effective it made me. And that's largely because, um, you know, th- what, what special operations forces are asked to do now around the world is way more than we're ever trained in in the schoolhouse we're selected for. Um, because, you know, State Department and uh, United States Agency for International Development personnel uh, whom are like, you know, partners with uh, with special operations forces in the field, they can't go out to the dangerous areas. Um, you know, they don't have that insight. And so many times special operations soldiers, especially ones um, like myself, are tasked to being battlefield diplomats, battlefield, battlefield aid workers. Um, and yet, we, you know, we don't have the master's degrees that they get. Um, we don't have the training. We don't have the resources. So um, it really, you know, it, it's really quite problematic. And that's why, you know, after um, I got back from the Philippines, I felt like I wanted to go work for USAID and take that survivability skill set over to them and see what they could do with it. If they could teach me, you know, more of the methodologies and the approaches that I would need um, to be effective. And that's exactly what happened. I actually fell into a very good stabilization, um, first stabilization instruction slot. And then USAID deployed me to Afghanistan for a couple tours in the east, um, where um, the ambassador that was out there took advantage of me being a special operations veteran and sent me to partner at the local level with, um, with military units that were struggling with their stabilization and counterinsurgency. So after USAID, you ended up at Palantir, I guess, probably because you were still looking for that data-driven approach to solving problems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, since you were at Palantir, you know, those pain points and, uh, I, you know, we were, we were spending millions of dollars of money in the East and, there just wasn't, um, number one, we didn't know what effects we were having positive or negatively. Um, what I can tell you is that, that the broader trends were pretty negative, that we were seeing a lot more violence, that we were seeing um, not only like violence against 
you know, uh, the, the security forces and us, but more importantly, violence of the Taliban, the Taliban against the community, um, and just community, like inter, inter-community violence. And those are all just really bad indicators of vulnerability and instability on a local level, uh, because it shows that like there's just no mechanism right now to help people resolve uh, their issues peacefully or legally, and they're and they're resorting to violence, um, and that creates dynamics within um, communities which are just very very hard to start mitigating. So that was the problem, um, and uh, and that's why when a good friend of mine who I believe you know. James Boyd, James Boyd came to me and said, after, after my second Afghan tour, uh, he came back and was like, hey, man, you should come join Palantir. I want you to take the stuff that you learned over there and like build it into, build it into our system. That's great. Uh, James Boyd has been a guest on this, on this podcast and really has a, an amazing story as well. That's actually how I first found out about your podcast is through James. And uh, what most people don't know is that James and I were in the same uh, infantry platoon back in 2005 at Fort Benning. So we go way back. And uh, he's a good man. So why did you leave Palantir and start Impel Project? Ah, uh, yeah. So this is, this is the great divide bec- between the Silicon Valley narrative and the Silicon Valley reality. Um, I really enjoyed working at, at, at Palantir, and quite frankly, I enjoyed the people the most. It was just such a fantastic team. But sometimes, um, you know, you I, – I, I love working in the field. I love working directly on problems. And sometimes when it comes to technology, there's the narrative that you are solving the world's problems. But you're really writing the code that helps the frontliners uh, solve the world's problems. And I think therein lay the disconnect for me is just that, you know, at the end of the day, I'm a field guy. And I gave two years of my time to help uh, Palantir understand how to deploy this very strong technology in the field in really nasty environments. Um, And particularly, um, you know, we did that large uh, disaster response after Typhoon Haiyan in the Central Central Philippines in 2013. And I was the lead um, engineer in, in the field on that. And that was great because I felt like I got to bring real value to the company and at the same time really learn and test the things that I needed to know to make the impact that I wanted to make. But, you know, it just, it, it, I was a 34, 35, 36-year-old combat veteran at a tech company where the average age was, especially, uh, you know, in my office, were probably around uh, no, 23, 24. And so, um, you know, that fit only lasts for so long. Um, and so, you know, I feel like I brought a, a lot of value to, to Palantir, um, and I will be forever grateful for what I learned there. Um, but in taking those lessons, you know, we, we immediately founded Impel Project with, um, you know, other stability practitioners from State Department and USAID and have been going strong ever since. And what are the types of uh, global projects that you've been working on? You've been all over the world. Yeah. You know, when you're a startup... Uh, you know, you don't have the luxury of, uh, of saying no too much. So that's actually given me the chance to work on uh, some amazing problems. Um, our, our specialty is uh, collecting data in very non-permissive, very dangerous, highly inaccessible areas, including police states. Um, it's a niche that no one really fills. Um, and obviously coming out of Palantir, uh, that is uh, near and dear to my heart. Like we can't solve problems that we don't understand. So I mean, right now we have better data out of some of the, the 
toughest conflict areas in the world. That's including the uh, Mindanao, Philippines, Benghazi, Libya, Tilbury, Niger. Uh, these are really rough neighborhoods. But I'm actually proudest of our work in Azerbaijan because um, that is a police state where it is where no data collection has really occurred uh, at large scale since uh, 2013 in the crackdown on civil society and yet 2018 and 2019 we were both able to secure permissions and get sample sizes over 3,000 uh, for face-to-face -face surveys which is it's unheard of um, and so those who are you know getting that data um, is, is really critical and that's how a lot of people know us but we're not the data project we're the implementation project we're impl project and so uh, we do the data simply so that we can get the, uh, the programs right and the projects right. So um, we really focus on building community resiliency by addressing the, the fundamental um, issues that are creating conflict and creating vulnerability and creating dysfunctionality. Um, what, are, what that really looks like is most places we are doing livelihoods projects that um, brings the community together to decide, you know, how do we build um, infrastructure that will benefit everyone. How do we build, um, you know, like uh, community toilets, uh, irrigation canals? Um, how do we teach the community to govern the irrigation canals in the water supply now that they have it? Because as uh, the as people all over the all over the world practicing uh, development and stabilization have learned in the past uh, 19 years. Just giving an asset like irrigation canals to a uh, to a community isn't enough. Um, you have to give communities the capacity to governance. If you give, just give them something uh, more to fight over, there's a chance that that'll happen and you've done harm. So, you know, we're really trying to approach this in um, a holistic and, um, but, but also very like locally sensitive manner, you know, gathering all that data when we can conduct focus groups because we do it all with, with um, you know, disconnected te technology and remote monitoring technology. You know, we can gather this clean data and then show it to the communities. And you wouldn't believe what it's like to hear like women in, you know, on the border of Niger and Mali unpack their own issues when it comes to subsistence farming, livelihoods, abuse, uh, maternal health. I mean, all those issues are connected in, in their heads and in their lives, uh, but very rarely does the programming um, help them and, and address their needs comprehensively. So that's what we're trying to do. Um, and it is a, an uphill battle, um, but most of the right ones are, and uh, things, have been, things have been going pretty well. So, Well, things were going really well, and then COVID-19 happened, and you were, to put it mildly, grounded in your little neighborhood in Maryland, and you've decided that you're going to go from global to local and use the IMPL project to figure out what's happening at the community level with COVID-19 in Maryland, and then beyond, perhaps. So what, what are you doing, and how's it going? It's going really well. Um, I never thought I'd have to apply my trade in the, in the United States. Um, and, uh, but on some level, I, you know, I'm, I'm humbled to be able to do so. My kids uh, live in Frederick, Maryland, and um, I can't feel, I, I don't feel like there's any stronger motivation to help Frederick get it right uh, than my own kids growing up in this community. So uh, my team and I have been uh, gathering uh, community contextual indicators here for the past six weeks and have seen kind of the dynamics in, you know, uh, some of the uh, uh, local economic issues, uh, supply chain, uh, health, and 
the, the dynamics are fascinating. Um, and what's interesting is that if you compare the actual like uh, cases and, and death rates across all 50 states, you'll see 50 different COVID infections and uh, infection curves and uh, severity, the, the severity of these uh, in, infections. And this reinforces the concept that data people have known all along. All programming is local. If you want to have a genuine impact, you have to get it right at the local level where it cannot aggregate up um, into a, a broader impact. And this is really inconvenient for people because everybody wants a silver bullet to COVID, just like they want a silver bullet to poverty and to malaria and to uh, uh, the biggest ills that our, our world is facing. And it doesn't exist. It doesn't exist. Um, Data teaches us that it is. It requires just hard work, consistency, and quite frankly, a lot of humility um, in just learning what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong and adjusting that. And I think you can only do that when it comes to uh, data. So we look at our community contextual indicators as the same type of bio data that uh, a nurse or a physician's assistant would take on a person going into the uh, going into the ER today because they're worried about COVID. You know, we're trying to diagnose the community's uh, you know COVID ills. Uh, just like a uh, just like a medical professional would be diagnosing this in a patient, because we're going to have to treat this th this patient here in Frederick and down in Fayetteville, Fayetteville, North Carolina, and in Marawi City, Philippines, where we're going to be operating within weeks and months. We're going to have to treat this patient according to the ills that we find here, not kind of overall general trends that we see nationwide. We've got to address the problem locally. So that's why we're collecting the data. And what are some of your early insights as to sort of the long-term, short-term, mid-term, and long-term problems, societal problems that are going to uh, erupt or slowly percolate in the wake of COVID-19? There is a, an appropriate emphasis now on the need for more uh, protective equipment for health providers and ventilators. Um, the problem is it took so much effort to convince the American public, public of, of what is obvious that we now lack, we now lack the, the capital to, to tell everybody, hey, uh, we need to start thinking about the economy. We need to start thinking about domestic violence. We need to start thinking about uh, uh, mental health resources. Nobody wants to hear it. People only want to talk about COVID, and the problem is um, a lot of states, like Maryland that I'm in right now, a lot of states have, have come up with, re, with, with good solutions to COVID, or at least um, the best solutions that they can um, reflecting in an environment where everybody was largely unprepared. But the problems, the, the social problems that will exist after the COVID infections and after the COVID deaths are going to be significant. Um, like the, the level of unemployment, before COVID, the single biggest response worldwide to our, to our first question in, in every survey we ask, what is the biggest problem facing your community, was the lack of livelihoods. Um, worldwide, 35 to 40,000 people in war zones and in police states over the past four years, 40,000 people, nearly 50% of them said lack of livelihoods or some permutation of that. That was before COVID. That was before the American economy saw 30 million people unemployed. Um, it's about to get really, really bad, and there's going to be a reshaping of the economy, um, and people are, are grossly unprepared for that. However, like you said, we are a scrappy little NGO, and obviously, we're not here. We're, we're not the Fed. We're not going to be able to uh, overhaul the U.S. economy. Um, what we are going to be able to do is uh, work on an issue that I think demands uh, a lot more attention and time, and that is the effect that the quarantines have had on domestic violence. 
the, the quarantines have, you know, forced families into situations that they wouldn't have gone into otherwise um, if there weren't, if there wasn't COVID, COVID and there wasn't quarantines. And I'm a huge believer in the quarantines. I think they should have happened faster and I think they should stay longer because it's the only, it's the only way we're going to save lives. Having said that, um, this puts people that are already in vulnerable relationships um, like really in the crosshairs of their abusers um, and requires them to, you know, to essentially shelter in place with people that don't have their best interests in mind. Um, so domestic violence hotlines across the country are just exploding. I know in Virginia, we're seeing 75% more calls uh, than we did at this time last year. Um, and the problem is uh, we, we've actually have some of our Impel family that is affected by this. Um, and we've had to register to emergency funding. And we realize that this is something, a, a need that a lot of, um, a lot of women have. So we have been uh, piloting efforts to provide emergency shelter to uh, women and their children to get out of domestic violence situations, to give them um, like, you know, five days in a, in a, you know, a suite or, you know, a, a stable living situation to give them the mental space, the physical space uh, to assess their kids, to assess their situation, to not face an additional uh, financial burden by making some space that's safe um, and letting them figure out their plans. Um, and where we're piloting it early right now is among the uh, veteran population. And we really hope that um, we're going to be able to expand that to um, more broadly. We're hoping to serve uh, 10 to 15 beneficiaries in North Carolina and Frederick, uh, each location, uh, hopefully by the, uh, by the end of summer. Has COVID-19 given you um, what I call viral insights about your own life and work and sort of reason for being? Yeah, uh, I wasn't quite expecting that, uh, that question. Uh, but you're, yeah, it really has. I, I'm not going to believe anybody that tells me they didn't completely reassess themselves and their careers and their lives during this, this time. Uh, I, for one, am spending way too much time on the road and not enough time with my children. Um, and, uh, and that is... Uh, that is a sober reality that I am slowly, slowly trying to come to grips with. Um, and, um, you know, I, I think telecommuting is absolutely going to become a much more fundamental part of Impel Project's, um, you know, future trajectory. Um, I just don't see the need in taking people away from their families to sit in an office all day. Um, I think there's just a lot better ways to do it. Now, the, the one opportunity... Uh, that that Impel Project has that most other organizations don't is that our scrappiness uh, means that we're terribly resilient. We have had to endure price shocks already. We've had we, 2019 was uh, was a tough year um, in terms of foreign policy policy decisions being up and down and right and wrong, um, and there were a lot of disappointments. But all those disappointments re disappointments refine your understanding. It is hard to have hubris when you are getting thrown curveballs and. Um, Quite frankly, um, you know, we've been hitting curveballs for the past couple of years, and we're, we're structured in such a way that um, highly resilient to these types of shocks. Um, civil society is getting hit so hard by COVID and the lack of donations. Um, and quite frankly, a lot of uh, U.S. local governments and state governments aren't used to working with civil society because they've never had to. Uh, American government um, has always worked enough. We're going to see COVID uh, break that and break those processes locally. Um, and then each jurisdiction is going to have to figure out um, how, they're going to, how they're going to solve that problem. 
so for me, um, I think uh, we, we, we've always had sort of the, uh, the motto within, within Impel Project to be humble and be curious. Um, because I think that, that it's in that humility and curiosity that you, you learn your own weaknesses, um, you learn your strengths, and you become more self-aware where you can plug in. And I think that's where I think that's where we all come together. We all have to look at what we have to offer in this uh, in this post-COVID environment and offer what we can, um, and not do so with the idea that we got to get something out of it. Um, that's why I, I get a lot of questions for why I started a consulting business and run it like an NGO and, you know, don't have it, you know, don't, uh, have shares, don't have stocks and, uh, just really do it because, um, because I love this stuff. But that reason is because, um, I think a lot of people are starting to get back to being neighborly and friendly and kind and generous because we have to, we don't have the luxury of being unkind anymore because we're all going through uh, significant traumas in our own lives. Um, and um, I, I, I hope this does lead to a little bit more um, just generosity between all of us and um, uh, so, some unity. But man, I'm not, I'm not exactly seeing that right now. I think people are really too scared for that. And the data shows that. Data shows significant um, just doubt um, and uncertainty. Um, and that, that, that's never existed in our lifetimes in America. And it, and it, does, put a lot of, um, it does put a lot of pressure on um, local jurisdictions to get this right because there's a high chance in some areas that this will result in violence. So uh, these are tough times. Looking back on your life, what would you say to that young soldier sitting in Camp Batista that morning of September 29, 2009, watching the helicopters whipping up dust as they went off to go kill those militants? Yeah. You know what? I I would probably uh, treat them like one of my own young soldiers and just look at them and, and, uh, and just tell them like, hey, um, the storm that's coming is going to last a long damn time. And, uh, you know, take your breaths when you get them. Take a knee when you got to. Um, and, and prepare yourself for the long haul. Because what's coming, what's coming is tough. And, um, you know, I think, um, I think my, my experience uh, in many ways matches the national, um, the national experience. Kind of the, ideal, uh, the, ide- the idealism of the post-9-11 um, world in which... Um, you know, we we have the mandate to go into other countries and to and, and to uh, eliminate threats and then rebuild them in our own uh, image. But then, uh, you know, <laughs> end up getting distracted by other foreign policy priorities. You know, the idealism and then being met with this, just the inability or uh, lack of desire to to follow through. And it's interesting because I'm I'm starting to read the narratives that are coming out about um, the main powers that are gonna that are gonna emerge from this crisis. And one of the main narratives that really um, that, that's really hitting home to me that I that I've seen, particularly coming out of the subcontinent, is um, is that China won World War III without firing a bullet. They won it with their their pandemic response, and they're providing aid while we are demanding aid and, and, and stealing aid from a different states. And uh, that that these points are not lost on our allies and adversaries throughout the world. Um, the look in in that. Um, that America was more paper than tiger. Um, that, that was a uh, that was a great line that came out of an article in, Polit- in Politico this uh, this week on how the world is viewing y- the the U.S.'s horrible response to um, COVID. And um, I don't know if it's quite to the magnitude of losing World War III without firing a shot, but it's bad. It, it, it's bad, and it's way worse than than Americans are really um, taking it. I mean, they're gonna they're gonna emerge from this. 
um, and you know the Amer- the American Empire is in uh, is in decline, and um, and there won't be any sort of uh, saving at this time. I don't think. Justin, thank you so much for taking the time to join me and for this very amazing and insightful conversation. Yeah, I don't, I don't mean to be a Debbie Downer. I think the Brits are still doing really well despite having lost their empire. So there is hope after hegemony. But yeah, I think that's where we're at right now. And uh, I, I, I think it's good for us to, to take this time to take a nice deep breath. I really appreciate talking to you um, and uh, highlight, highlighting so many good people. I, I love the, the podcast you had with James. So, uh, you know, it's great. Thanks so much. Justin Richmond is founder and executive director of Impel Project, a scrappy little nonprofit with a global vision and mission to use data to drive community outcomes. Richmond is an alumnus of Duke University, Five Wars, USAID, and Silicon Valley, where he served as forward deployed engineer and was my colleague at Palantir Technologies. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. Thanks for listening to When It Mattered. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family, and colleagues. When It Mattered is a weekly leadership podcast produced by Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with strategy, brand positioning, and narrative. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Our producer is Jeremy Kaur, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions. Our theme song is composed by Jack Yeagerlein. Join us next week for another edition of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.